I'm Dan Walters. And I'm Anthony Peters. This is the No Ideas Podcast. Welcome to episode one of the No Ideas Podcast. Our first guest is Anthony Burrell, a printmaker and artist who's based on the outskirts of Rye down in Kent. We went down by train, didn't we? Met at Lewis train station. Beautiful sunny day. Uh, And when we got there, we got collected by Anthony and his wife, Emma. We did. Uh, They took us into town. Uh, We had a quick coffee. And a brownie. Yeah, and a brownie. Really (laughs) delicious brownie. And then uh, they took us on a little tour of Adams of Rye, which is the printmaker where Anthony gets all his uh, posters printed. So we then got driven to the studio where we got an amazing, insightful interview into Anthony's process and his archive and we got to see a few things that he's got coming up. Uh, We even got to hear his new Acid House record which was pretty amazing as well. And we got to see the Seven Stages of Rave video which I think he melted people's brains with at Glug London a few years ago. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Anthony Burrell is an internationally renowned graphic artist, printmaker and designer who lives with his family near Rye in Kent. He has been many things, a photocopier enthusiast, rave promoter, letter set addict, but mostly he is known for colourful and optimistic artworks held and exhibited in places such as the V&A, the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York, the Barbican, the Walker Arts Centre and the Design Museum in London. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks for having me and thanks for, um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, yeah... Well, thanks for having us as well to your <laughs> wonderful studio. It's quite hard to, uh, to well, it's the opposite of hard to relax here because we're in the middle of absolutely gorgeous countryside. So yeah, and it's a beautiful day as well. It's We really want to be on the beach, is, is, the, <laughs> is the main thing. Um, so we're going to start um, where you start a lot of your lectures, having researched you and watched a few of your lectures online. Um, a few times you start with a picture of you and your sister yeah with a yeah. horse in the middle I'd yeah. just like to love to know a little story about that um well my yeah my sister um had horses uh so she had um misty the pony who's in the photograph right. and um where i grew up it was um the house were, was kind of it used to be a farm and then it was kind of completely rebuilt and everything um so there were big doors and my mum was in the garden, kind of tending to her garden. And she looked up at the window and the horse was in the living room eating the flowers off the top of the TV. Amazing. Uh, so she went mad, ran in the house and like dragged the horse out. And um, it, it had just kind of wandered in. Um, so where, like when my dad came home from work, she, she was telling him the story and, and we're, like, we're all laughing about it. Um, and then he told a friend of his who told somebody else... Who was a freelance photographer, and she said, "Oh, it'd make a great story for the paper." So, um, <laughs> right. and she was like, "Can I come round and take take a photograph of the horse in the house with the children?" Um, so it was all set up so that so the horse was groomed and cleaned, and we we got our kind of uh, best outfits on, and my mum set the table and with wine. We yeah, with said. wine, um, and then we me and my sister sat down, and I just thought it was really. <laughs> 
weird. <laughs> uh, so they brought the horse in, and it, the horse was really well behaved, and it just kind of sat there in between us. And me and my sister just like you know smiled for a few Amazing. photographs, <laughs> and then uh, then the next thing it was in it was in I think it was in in the Manchester Evening News. It's just like one of those funny stories, really. Beautiful, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And then, then I think, uh, I think it was like in, like in the Daily Mail or something like that later. But I've, so I've got that photograph, and it's just such a bizarre kind of like weird image. It's this kind of surrealism of the horse being in the house yeah. and the like my sister's got this kind of like angelic look on her mm. face and I'm looking straight at the camera grinning you look quite cheeky <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's just this like perfect encapsulation of my childhood I think in that image and I think it, it kind of it's almost like well you know if he was doing this kind of stuff when he was eight or nine what happened yeah. later on so but yeah just and it's just I'm just so pleased to have that image because yeah, it's, uh, it yeah, it's a weird, weird thing. Love it. It's amazing the stuff you've kept. We'll get onto that later when we talk about the archive. But so you grew up in Lancashire in the north of England. Do you think growing up in the north during the 70s and 80s shaped who you are creatively and, and your career? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, just the, um, the environment I was kind of brought up in, I suppose, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, sort of, um, so was Manchester being, you know, kind of, it's it's always had a rich music history. And I suppose, you know, just just hearing, you know, the, the kind of the ripples of that coming out of Manchester when I was young. And then sort of like when I was kind of, you know, kind of a sixth form at school, then getting into music and then going out and then eventually going to the Hacienda. And, you know, my, I was perfect in the perfect age in 1988 89 to be in in that whole whole time so yeah i think um yeah i think definitely yeah definitely it's kind of all that stuff kind of feeds into uh yeah kind of what i am now manchester was on the horizon wasn't it for you growing up literally literally on the horizon yeah yeah so uh from my bedroom window there's because we, we were on the hills like the the the, the foothills of the pennines um so from my bedroom window i could look out uh, across Oldham towards Manchester, I could see the glow of Manchester in the in in the distance, sort of luring you in. Yes, amazing, be- beckoning me. So we've read that as a child you travelled with your grandfather. Could you uh, just tell us a bit about this? My my grandfather retired, and he wanted to travel. Uh, and my grandmother was she didn't like flying. She never flew. She went, I think she went to, she's gone on holiday with a friend to uh, Prestatin. Um, and my grandfather, he was keen to kind of go back to the places he'd, he'd been during the, during the war. Right. So he was in the tank regiment. So he'd kind of, he'd fought in North Africa and Italy and France. And so he, he kind of wanted to go back and see all these places that last time he was there was, uh, yeah, it, during, during the war. So, um. So he said, "Oh, you know, would uh, would Anthony like to come with me?" And I was like, yeah, "Very excited, to kind of, because you know we, we'd kind of travelled a little bit, but you know, just to like Spain and, and places like that." So the first place me and my grandfather went was Italy, to uh, kind of Naples, and went to Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius, and and I was I was probably about about nine or ten, something like that. So just just after the horse photograph yeah. had been taken, um, <laughs> so my. So yeah, so it was like me and my granddad, 
and we'd go go out we'd travel you know we, we'd go on holiday for, for a couple of weeks and then come back and I'd, I'd do like little kind of show and tells at school and like yeah. tell all my friends kind of you know show them pictures and and stuff that so and in a way I suppose that was like a kind of grounding in communication like visual communication I suppose because yeah. I'd bring all these bits back that we'd bought and you know like lumps of lava from Mount Vesuvius and I'd show them to all, all my school friends and go uh, so yeah so I, I suppose kind of going out kind of gathering information and then coming back and, and sharing it so that was kind of that was something I was doing from quite an early age. Do you think a lot of the, the maybe signage and the wayfinding that you experienced when you were travelling maybe had an early impact or effect? Yeah, I, th- I think just kind of, um, well, being with my grandfather, you know, he, he was just as excited as I was. And so we'd be kind of looking at things and taking photographs. So, we, so yeah, the first one we went to Italy, um, then we went to Tunisia and we went to Greece and Turkey, went to Russia... And, you know, this is like in the sort of early 80s. It was kind of like, you know, the, the kind of Cold War was still, you know. Pre-Berlin Yeah, wow. yeah, all that stuff. So, yeah, and then and we went to China as well. Went to Hong Kong, China. Travelled a bit in China. And when, when it was still, you know, very much, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the way that it was in those days. So, yeah, so kind of, um, so then, and then I'd come back to, come back home and it'd be like, wow, that was... And it was just like, I'd have all, have all this, like, you know, the experience of, of seeing these places and and really kind of, yeah, I think that, that, that kind of planted the seeds for, you know, for, um, you know, my grandfather was, you know, a big influence. He was, he was, you know, he was a clever man. He was very inquisitive and and he was really funny as well. What did he do? Um, he, he kind of, he worked for the coal board. And he always wore wore a tweed suit. Amazing. Had kind of brill creamed hair and kind of you know he was, he was like a proper proper gent. But yeah, amazing sense of humour. We kind of um, this one time we were in uh, we we're in Florence, I think it was, and we were in the hotel and we had some grapes and we were like chucking them out of the hotel window, like watching <laughs> watching the people kind of walk past in the pavement. And and it's like you know he was like, all right, I'm going to get this chap now. <laughs> so, Amazing. Uh, that's where you get the cheeky grin from I think. definitely definitely <laughs> you've had quite a, a run of inspiring teachers haven't you quite lucky in, the, yeah, in that respect yeah, yeah. you studied um, graphic design at Leeds Poly and you had a tutor called John Ross who you, yes. you really you'd speak fondly of can you just tell us a little bit about John Ross um, so I got to Leeds to uh, to study graphic design and when I arrived there it's like John was he was running I think like running the illustration bit of the course and but he was um kind of you know larger than life character and real he used to stride around in his hobnail boots and corduroy suit and and you know like a kind of Victorian mill owner and we'd all we kind of be slightly frightened of him and slightly love him at the same time and then you you we you kind of have a few pints in the pub with him after and he just he'd kind of regale you with stories of of his exploits so yeah but kind of really um i think the f- yeah the, maybe the first person i'd met who who kind of lived the life of an artist he gave you quite a push when you came down to london as well didn't he i'm not sure yeah yeah you could say it maybe we could bleep it but he gave you some good advice yeah on leaving yeah. um so it was the uh, it was the evening of our degree show and so we put the degree shop and at that time 
I'd been accepted to the Royal College to do graphic design. Um, so I was kind of like, I was in such a brilliant, that was like a brilliant kind of time to, to kind of be in. It's like I'd finished at Leeds and I was kind of getting ready to go to London. And, and so I was talking to John about this and we, you know, we'd had a few drinks and he just put his arm around me and said, get down to London and fuck them. Fuck the lot of them. I was like, right, John, right, yes, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And it was almost like, you know, because he, he'd, he'd spent time down in London and, you know, and then he'd kind of come back and and it was almost like, yeah, just, you know, get down there and don't, you know, don't wimp out, go for it. And, and yeah, so that's, um, yeah. That pretty much took his advice on that, didn't you? You smashed pretty much, it. Pretty much, yeah. And then you, you did an MA at the Royal College. Yeah. And uh, Alan Kitching was your tutor right yeah so um so he was um so at the time he ran a letterpress workshop so it's part of the royal college but it was in an annex of vna on exhibition road so it, was, it wasn't in the the main bit of the building so you could go down there and it was a similar kind of setup to adams of roy where i do my printing now so they had a big heidelberg press and a fantastic collection of type um and alan ran uh, typography workshops in there so I was kind of I'd kind of been aware of letterpress before that but I think Alan kind of you know he he was kind of I think at, at the stage of his career as well he was kind of he was trying you know making the the sort of change from being a, a graphic designer into a kind of graphic artist so so kind of at that time he was kind of showing us what he was doing and kind of like big big kind of, uh, they were called broadsides, like with big typography, big wood type and like great colours. So I think that definitely planted a seed. When I was at the Royal College, I did I did bits of letterpress, but I didn't really sort of get into it um, as much. There were a few other distractions going on at the time. <laughs> so you've undertaken a project with Alan recently, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Can so, you talk about that? Um, yeah, so, um, so I've been in touch with Alan um since I left the Royal College and he's got an amazing wood type collection so I thought it'd be great to get uh, to get Alan to come down to Rye to meet Ian and Derek because I thought they'd have a lot in common you know the um, similar kind of generation and, and kind of background in, in real letterpress printing so and is this a project that's going to see the light in the forthcoming months or yeah I think so yeah I think we're going to work, uh, finish it off of the summer so Alan came down and we, we set some type and so it's kind of a bit of bit of him, a bit of me, and a bit of Ian and Derek. Sort of a poster collaboration. Yes, yeah, it's okay. going to be a poster. Yeah, that's right. And because he his finish is quite rough, isn't it? With the way that he usually prints type, it's almost um, the ink comes off halfway through. Yeah. How do you get that? How do you get that balance between the two of you? Um, I think uh, I think it's that the type that he uses is is quite worn and um, but yeah, I, I think we'll we'll just see how it turns out really. So he brought his own type down. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. In, in his, uh, so we, we we chatted about what we were going to do, and then he brought a few few letter forms down to that we could set. So yeah, it's going to be good. Um, so one of your early projects that I lo love hearing you kind of talk about um, was your uh, work with Hans Brinkler Hotel mm. in, in Amsterdam. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, something I love that I've seen on some of your like lectures online is that you got a load of ideas. Um, sent to you, and you produce posters for all twenty of them. Is yeah, that right? yeah. So it's um, so this is um, 
Sis when I met um, Eric Kessels, yeah. who has been another major influence on on my sort of life and career and everything. Uh, so Eric was was working with my wife. Uh, she was working as a photographer at the time, so they were working on a, uh, an advertising project. And he he said, "Oh, I need somebody to do some typography for these posters." And Emma said, "Oh, I know somebody who's good with type." Um, so I, I kind of went in to see Eric and then that's when we first met so maybe like 95, 96 okay. um, so then as soon as we met it was like you know we were both you know kind of we kind of understood each other straight away I think um, so so then he, he went back to Amsterdam and was setting up Kessels Kramer his agency and one of their first clients was the, was the Hans Brinker Hotel so the idea was he he um, Johan is copywriter uh, sent through they faxed through a list of like twenty different ideas like copy lines and in my naivety I thought they wanted me to make twenty posters oh, I love that. so so I, <laughs> so I kind of like over the course of a couple of days I, I designed twenty posters and faxed them all back to him so he, he said like they were in the office and the fax started to kind of spool out <laughs> these ideas I was like you know twenty of them all completely finished posters and they just thought it was completely mad have you stayed in the handsbreaker yeah yeah a couple of times yeah. is it is it crap um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, but it's not as bad as a, as uh, the advertising makes out. <laughs> um, so another turning point in your career was uh, the Work Hard poster, mm. um, the story of which is pretty mythical now in design circles. Um, but with all the slogan posters, um, how do you come up with the ideas? And wh- where do the slogans kind of come from? What's um, your process? Um, it's just through, through. well, just they just kind of happen really I don't, <laughs> I don't I don't have a kind of like kind of fixed way of doing it and in a lot of ways they they just they just sort of develop and and you know just sort of come to the surface really and I think it's just that you know, that idea of, of kind of um of just letting things mature and, and kind of mull over in, in your head before you kind of commit commit to yeah. them too much but I think um I think when I did work hard it, it, it kind of it kind of set set uh I didn't really understand it at the time, what what I was doing. I you know it was kind of two thousand and four when I first printed it, and it's kind of, it just seemed like an interesting you know kind of like slightly odd th- statement to make, mm. and it just kind of went out there, and then again you know it it kind of opened opened a different avenue of working, and and kind of uh, you know kind of being able to kind of get my voice yeah. voice across really. Yeah, and you print them all um, at Adams of Rye, yes. which we've been to this morning, like on the way here. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about your relationship with them and how that's kind of developed? Um, it's kind of, it's an amazing place, and it's like it's it's through pure luck that um, that when we moved down here, that um, that we found you know Adams Adams was there, and it's like a you know traditional letterpress printers and and just you know a, a kind of print printers that, that kind of serves the local community and it's um you know it's it's not like a kind of fancy uh fancy place you know they're they're printers so it's like when i when i first started working with them i said you know can you print me this poster and I gave them the text and they said oh yeah it'll be ready uh, ready week after next and it was like well you know do i get to see you know a proof or anything so oh, no <laughs> we'll, we'll just print it and then see if you like it and and kind of that was it really and it's kind of um, 
the, the more I work with them, the, you know, it's like every time I go in there, I just appreciate it and, and just love it. And, you know, just, yeah, I can't imagine what I'd be doing. Do you have a favourite typeface that they that they have? Uh, all of them. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just, yeah, you know, sort of like the, the kind of classic type. Is there is there a main um, typeface that you use on, on the, the major slogan prints? Um, yeah, the, yeah I, was, I think... I've tried a few, you know, they've got lots of different typefaces, but I've, I kind of just choose the most basic one, really. They're kind of, the, um, they're kind of simplest, so it's, yeah, just a really blocky sans serif. So we're going to take a little break, but we'll be back in just a moment when we'll be talking about ideas, Letraset and Anthony's time as a rave promoter. You've collaborated with an amazing array of people, from Michael Marriott to Mr Bingo, Craftwork and Kate Moross. Is there a secret to a successful collaboration, do you think? Um, I think the main secret is to collaborate with somebody who's better than you. And it, it kind of, it sort of makes you kind of raise your game a bit and it makes you, you know, kind of want to, want to kind of, kind of do some, kind of progress a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe Mr. Bingo isn't the right example of that, but <laughs> <laughs> but that was a different thing. That, um, that had both your tones, though, didn't it? That piece, yeah, yeah. I really love that. No, it was like what, he emailed through and said, "Oh, can I do this to your post?" And I was like, "Yeah," and I think he was quite quite surprised that you know I was quite happy to um, destroy my own work. <laughs> you mentioned working with somebody. Who's, who's better in some respects yeah, yeah. I always um, tell the kids um, there's that famous line of if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room mm, so mm, and I love mm. that idea of of putting yourself out of your comfort zone yeah. and, and collaborating beyond that you really started out collaborating didn't you with um, with other other friends that you you um, were educated with is that right with with the Pam project yes can you yeah, tell us a yeah. bit about Pam um, yeah Pam is um Paul, Anthony and Malcolm. So Paul Plowman, me and Malcolm Goldie. Um, so I met Paul in like 87. So, so he was the, the year below me at Leeds. And then he he was at the Royal College the year after me. And, you know, we were just friends. And he was um, uh, he was interested in, in moving image. So after I'd left Leeds, uh, he... In his final year, he made a video for LFO. Amazing. Which one? Which track? LFO. LFO. Oh, no. The track. Wow. So he, he met, uh, so he worked with a couple, couple of his friends, uh, Gary Smith and uh, a couple of others. And they they kind of filmed and edited the, the kind of first acid video that was on Top of the Pops. Amazing. LFO by LFO. So yeah, amazing. Um, so we, we just kind of started collaborating and, and kind of working on little projects and then you know as both of our careers have developed we've kind of developed together really um and then he introduced me to malcolm goldie who's <laughs> is like you know the the third uh yeah the third person in pam and Mal malcolm's just an amazing musician and kind of sound sculptor and, and kind of like the funniest person i know as well 
So I, th- I think that like the combination of the three of us, and we, we've just done tons of projects together, and it's always been. Uh, we we called ourselves Pam for a while, and then that we fa- we found that a little bit limiting. I think I think when you work with somebody and you, and you understand each other really well, it's almost like you don't really need to kind of talk about ideas too much. You just go, oh, I'm going to do this, you do that, and then we'll do that, and then this will this thing will happen. So there's no real egos in that collaboration. You, yeah. You're all just you just want the same thing to happen. I yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. We're we're all just uh, yeah. It's kind of um, I think it's that combination of, you know, taking taking kind of graphics and moving image, then combining them with sound, because the way that Malcolm kind of like makes the sound work with the visuals, it's almost like everything locks into place and it is very satisfying. Malcolm also works with Wilfred Wood as uh, MC Tiddles, is it? Yeah, yeah, MC Tiddles. Which uh, we'll, we'll find some links and put those yeah. up on the site, because that's absolutely <laughs> gold, incredible stuff. Um, so more recently, uh, I think it was 2017, you published a book called Make It Now, Yeah. Um, which is part kind of creative biography. Um, does doing a book like this feel like you're kind of drawing a line under this kind of stage of your career and life? Um, uh, yeah, it kind of, it was, um, so the, the idea of the book came through um, Ellen Jones, who's an editor at Penguin, and We'd we'd be we'd spoke maybe for about a year or so about making a book and then so I did a little kind of um kind of rough idea and then it was uh it was commissioned by Penguin. Um and I I kind of had a it was almost like all all the stuff I talk about in, in my uh lectures and you know, when I do bits of um kind of teaching projects and things like that. So all all those ideas were put into the book as well as a kind of um, kind of past projects that were kind of relevant so and it was kind of a manifesto you know kind of creative manifesto and and I kind of I kind of wrote it um, in you know we almost like you know it's like a message to your younger self kind of idea so you, you're kind of saying you know th- these are all the questions you were wondering about when you were at college or just about to leave college and and you know so this is me you know 20 years later saying this this is kind of this is a way of doing it. It's quite fluxus, isn't it, in the way you've put it together with different bits of text in different places. They don't jar with each other, but they it's um, not done in a sort of very dry way, and it, it is quite advice based, but it's also biographical. And I mean, it, it's was that was that your first the first book of that ilk, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it's kind of. Um, the kind of overarching idea is one of collage so I think collage for me is it's kind of it's take you know kind of finding interesting things kind of combining them and making something new out of those combinations so kind of it's a way of kind of being creative and I think you know a way of kind of like living your life as well as to to kind of look for lots of different influences and then combine all that stuff and make make up your your bit of the world from from all those influences it's the same as the, the slogan posters really but in rather than just visual collage you're actually taking things from real life yeah real yeah. things you've overheard and mixing those with visual elements um i guess the collage is something that even though it's not obviously collage that you could apply as a, as a terminology to your work yeah i think so yeah it's i think that that's something i definitely realized when i was working on the book that it, it's kind of 
it's not really about creating something in a vacuum. It's about um, it's about taking all those all those experiences. You know, the kind of travel when I was young and that education, and then all the, all the different stuff kind of gets combined and turned into the work. And I think that's a you know that's a natural way of working. And I think that's I think that's how how we all kind of live and work really. Um, much of the early archive includes photocopied ephemera. Was the photocopier a big part of your early work? Yeah, uh, yeah. Photocopying was um, really my only means of production. Um, so it was cheap. You could get an A4 for four p. So that was well within my budget. Um, and for me, it was you know it's kind of pre-computers. So you know, kind of um, you know, it was it just seemed like very direct and um, like punk in the eye yeah, line. yeah. I was kind of, um, yeah, no, and, there, and there was a, a corner shop at the bottom of our street where we lived and I had a photocopier. So I'd, I'd be in there at, like every day photocopying <laughs> things. And it's like, you know, they, they've said, oh, what, what, you know. After a while, it was just like I just used to go in and, and you know, I'd be there. Like with Adams. Yeah, yeah. And it's like just, and because it was so everyday and so, um, you know, so kind of easily accessible. So I'd photocopy all this stuff and then take it back to the uh, kitchen table and cut things out and, you know, make, you know, it's like that's how I made all the Hans Brinker posters was photocopying. And I kept all the artwork was at A4 size so that I could fit it onto the photocopier and I could scan it and stuff. So everything was, you know, in a way, in a way, you know, I've always loved those restrictions. You know, I think... I think you know, uh, working within restrictions is is uh, it really suits my my Absolutely. way of working. Um, so you've done some really fascinating projects recently, um, including the Ditchling Big Press, which used a steamroller. Yeah. Yes, so steamroller. So there'll be some restrictions within that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you um, tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that uh, so Ditchling were running um, running a, a series of events. It was called the uh, Village of Type. Um, so Ditchling is, you know, associated with uh, Edward Johnston of Underground Typeface and with Eric Gill yeah. of Gill Sands yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everything else. So the, so they invited me to, to make a print with a, a steamroller. And it was like, yeah, fantastic. It was like, you know, kind of, I think it's <laughs> it's that idea, you know, that real kind of um, idea of surrealism that, you know, of kind of employing this, you know, 10 ton hunk of steel to to roll over a piece of um kind of inked inked wood to make a to make a giant print there's got to be a guinness book of records for that surely you're the only one that's done that uh well i I don't know i think um when i was at the royal college i wanted to make the world's biggest book that was that (laughs) that was on my list of things to do like just to is that still to come then yeah um i wanted to get uh you know the guinness book of records to come to the degree show and you know, certify as the world's biggest book. But you know, other things got in the way. And um, so, one of our favourite projects that you've worked on was the uh, oil and water piece. Yep. In which you used uh, like the oil, oil from the yeah, oil spill yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. How did how did this project come about? Um, so it was during. Um, so it was the. Was it 2000, uh, 2010? It was when it happened. <laughs> so the so there's the. Uh, big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. a big environmental disaster, huge news story. Um, 
so it's kind of it was like dominating the 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 news at the time um and then i got an email from a creative in brussels called tom gall and he was a art director and with his um uh, with his his copywriter um they'd kind of they'd kind of come up with an idea to, to kind of print a poster using using oil from the oil spill and they said oh we you know we've got our tickets we're going to fly out next week to print this poster um can you design it for us because they'd kind of been struggling with with what to, to kind of uh, how the you know what it was actually going to say um, so my first idea um, was oil and water do not mix, Amazing. and it was kind of um, it was almost I try and go with my first idea every time because it's the it's the kind of purest response I suppose. Mm. So I kind of I've laid I laid out the text, uh, sent it over, and then the next thing I knew they were in uh, New Orleans, the you know kind of in a in a print studio, you know it's oil that they'd kind of got straight from the beach and taken to the screen printers and you know it, they'd sieved the shells and you know dead animals out of it and kind of uh, were screen printing with it and yeah made, made some really beautiful posters you seem to have been drawn to a few political uh, ideas or design projects does politics play a part in your work the whole I- idea of uh, positive propaganda is something that i'm really interested in that you know there's so much bad stuff going on and it's like how, how can you how can you respond to that we, you know how can you make work that is hopeful and and kind of has got a kind of generosity of spirit and hopefully um yeah do, you know do, kind of an antidote to to the sort of negativity really so record artwork and music were a big influence for you can you remember the band logos that you drew on your textbook that you've talked about yeah before? yeah i could probably draw the adam and the ants logo um, would you would you be prepared away. to give us that give us a go? Yeah, um, and we can put yeah, that on the, yeah. on the site. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Um, and that's sort of where you found an early love of, without even knowing it properly, of typography and design. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, when I was in, I think like the fifth form at school, um, my friend Philip Cad, his brother, was selling some records and. There was one. He said, "Oh, do you do you want this one?" And it was "Man Machine" by Kraftwerk. So I think I, I bought that off him for. That's the red one, isn't it? Yeah, with yeah, 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 with four of them oh. uh, in red lipstick <laughs> and kind of. And it was just the incredible, just kind of getting that artifact, of of um, listening to the music and the sleeve, and it was so mysterious and so, the sounds were so gorgeous, and I was I was just absolutely kind of obsessed with that record it's um you you specifically in some of your talks have mentioned the human league mm. and letra set you yeah. sort of put yeah. those together in your talks Can you talk to us a bit about your love affair with letra set um yeah so the um it's the sleeve of being boiled by the human league uh which uses uh micrograms pino and uh clip art from I think it's sheet four three two. So I'm quite. I can tell I'm quite obsessed with the detail of that. So, You've still got the book, right? You've still got the lecture set. Oh yeah. Can we, can we get a photo of that as well? Yes. Amazing. Um, so yeah, I think that that's where. So I got the record sleeve. Uh, got bought bought the record. Um, I think on the first day of our foundation course, we went to the art shop and we were all given a letter set book by the letter set rep. 
So I was kind of leafing through the letter set catalogue and there was the clip art that the Human League had used on their record sleeve of like the dancing couple and then the sort of the line drawing of Manhattan and it was like, wow, <laughs> that's how they did it. That's 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 what they used to make the sleeve out of. And it was like, yeah, that's so that's how you do graphic design. And that's the whole thing that a lot of punk and post-punk had was it made people feel as though they could do the same. Yeah. It wasn't alienating, not just in graphic design, but in music as well. Yeah. I mean, that again, you were born at the, the right time to experience all of that mm. and in the right place. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like the Mute Records logo was like, you know, a Letraset pictogram. That's it. Yeah, it was like a, it was like one of the architectural symbols. and From above, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, from above. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, talking about your the, the age in which you were born, you were exactly the right age to be like in the midst of Acid House and Rave. Yeah, very, right? very lucky. And you went to the Hacienda, didn't you, early on? So we were kind of, it's when I was in, yeah, when I was on my foundation course, we used to go out to like the, the, uh, the night club in Oldham. It was called, uh, it was called Over the Rainbow or something or... Yeah, and there's another one called Butterflies. And it was like, you know, really awful, <laughs> really terrible places. And there'd always be a massive fight at the end of every night. Um, so that, and then we, people saying, oh, you should, yeah, that, you should go to the Hacienda. It, it's really good. Because the Hacienda had been, been open for years and none of our friends ever went. No, it, was, it wasn't a place we ever went. And then someone was saying, oh, you should go on a Friday night. It's really good. Um, so we went down on Friday night, and we, and we were kind of, kind of expecting the similar kind of club experience, you know, dancing to uh, music we weren't into. So we so we arrived there, and immediately you could hear the the bass, like the the kind of kick drum, and all the other kind of windows in the shops on the, on the same road <laughs> vibrating, and the the queue to, queue to get in. And I can still vividly remember kind of getting in there, paying the money, and the the, the photograph of Tony Wilson, kind of, and then you you went through these, the kind of, um, the kind of plastic, uh, curtains. Yeah, that, industrial. Yeah, yeah, and then so it was kind of the sound was kind of like throbbing and kind of muffled, and then you went you kind of went through these plastic curtains and the sound just hit you. It was like in a kind of, and then you just think, wow. This is, and everywhere, everywhere you could see, there's like people dancing, like podiums, and just like the most amazing music. Was that a sort of evangelical moment for you with yeah. regards to the, the yeah. music? Yeah, I think when when we make the the, the film of my life story, that's going to be a, a kind of pivotal scene. Who who would play you? Um, I play myself. <laughs> Good answer. With, um, a, with a wig. <laughs> Did you have long hair at the time? Yeah, yeah, Amazing. yeah. Amazing. Of course. Um, <laughs> and so from that, you then went on to have a little time as a rave promoter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you mind telling us about that? Um, so, so we'd be, so we were going to the Hacienda and kind of Friday nights, and and then a friend of mine, Mark, uh, we were just chatting. He said, "Do you, you know, do you fancy making some money?" I went, "Yeah." And he said, "But you know, cool money." Went, yeah, sounds brilliant. And he said, "Let's let's put on a party." I went, "Yeah, that sounds great." So the, there's like a gang of us, you know, like, um, and we hired out a snooker club in Oldham, the Hurricane, and 
the the kind of you know uh, room where you'd have like wedding receptions and stuff like that. So like there was a bar on one side and then a kind of dance floor and little stage. My friend Steve Hicks, who I was at college with, he he had a few kind of Chicago house records and uh, some hip hop. So he was the DJ, um, and we we designed posters and like like our friends kind of like put flyers all around Oldham, and we we uh, we said it was Oldham's first acid house party, <laughs> which it was. Like mm. up until that point, n- none none of that had happened in Oldham, so we kind of put flyers everywhere. And then we were kind of like, we we're setting up all, all the stuff. We'd kind of borrowed this really rubbish PA. And so we we're setting up. And then a friend of ours who was, who was the, by the door, we were due to open at like eight o'clock. And he said, have you seen the queue? And we kind of went outside and the queue was right down the street. Like, everyone, Amazing. literally everyone we knew had turned up. So everyone piled in and, you know, put put uh, fivers into the into a bin bag <laughs> and r- absolutely rammed the place and it was just um it was stiflingly hot and we'd borrowed a smoke machine so that was on full the strobe was on full and because everyone was dancing the the needle of the record was bouncing up and down so it just made this kind of just like so people were dancing to the sounds of themselves dancing <laughs> So like Steve played all his records in about half an hour, and I was like, "Well, play the other side." So he played the other side, and and, and then the, yeah, it was incredible. And so then it finished. You know, it's just like people we people just came, you know, and it was full on. Everyone was into Acid House, and it was just mental. And then everyone left, and we were just left with this bin bag full of money, <laughs> and we shared it out between us. <laughs> Uh, so it was like, well, should we do it again next month? And we're all, yeah, yeah, let's let's just carry on doing it. So we we kind of booked booked the Hurricane Club again, and then the police went round to uh, Mark's house and spoke to his mum and dad. I said, we don't want Acid House in Oldham. You're Mark's not to have another party. So uh, so he said, no, we can't do it anymore. So uh, we stopped doing it. That's amazing. That's incredible. So we were busted by the, by the man. <laughs> and, and those flyers, you mind if we put those on, on the yeah, website yeah, as yeah, well? Yeah, 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 Because that's really prototype. Yeah, yeah. Anthony Burrell. Work, yeah, that's, that's entry level. Yeah, stage one. We're now in 2018. Yes. And it's been quite a long time since uh, <laughs> the summer of love, right? But you've undertaken making your own Acid House rave record, right? Yes, indeed. So uh, I worked with a band called Acid Washed, uh, who was signed to Record Makers in Paris. Um, so Paul and myself made made all the videos for their tracks, and I did the album artwork, um, So, and which was a fantastic um, experience. Um, and then through that, I got to know David, who's, who's, who was one half of Acid Washed. Is obsessed as as I am with uh, with early acid house or the kind of Chicago stuff, and I was in Berlin last year and we were chatting, and I was saying, oh, I've always wanted to make my own record, and he's like, well, let's make a record. Then. Yeah. I was like, okay, let's do that then. Um, so, so I went back to Berlin and spent a bit of time in his studio. Uh, which mostly involved me kind of standing next to him going, yeah, that sounds great. That's <laughs> and kind of do more of that, do more of that. Uh, so we, we, we just spent, uh, spent a day kind of like just making sounds and, and playing around. And then so it started to develop ideas for, for a track. 
and then carried on talking about it and then David kind of worked on it uh, for a while and then he was like oh we need a, we need another track for the other side so he kind of did kind of did an ambient remix of, of the track so I, I kind of recorded sounds in and around where we are now in the fields and, and kind of sounds of the chickens and stuff like that and sent them over <laughs> to him and he, he's kind of we were thinking about the KLF and, yeah, and all that out, kind yeah. of chill out stuff so we, we kind of um, so we finished the tracks off, got them all mastered, and they're currently being pressed in a record plant in uh, in Germany. And then, so we get them back, uh, I think in, in about a month's time, and then I'm going to screen print all the sleeves. Each each sleeve's going to be different, so we're, I think there's going to be 300 copies. Um, so we're going to finish up doing a few like kind of quick-fire questions. Yep. Yeah. So how do you generate new ideas? Um, what happens if solutions and ideas don't easily arise? Um, well, I don't know about new ideas. I've kind of had one idea that I've always done. <laughs> and it's kind of just been my idea. I think, I think you just have to let ideas come. And I think you have to respond to things. Kind of, I respond to things emotionally, I think. And I kind of think how, how something kind of links into you know, my own biography and my, my kind of worldview and mindset so so it, for every project that that I get I kind of I just respond to it personally and I don't think there's I've, I've never really sat down and think right I'm going to think of an idea for this so whenever I do that the ideas are really too forced you know and I think when it, when I think less and kind of feel more that's when good ideas happen yeah um with that in mind uh, which idea do you wish you'd thought of um I think uh, acid house. <laughs> Good answer. Making a machine that can make people dance. Fantastic. Um, do you think that art can change the world or change society? Um, I think I think it were well, it kind of reflects society. I think, and I think it kind of. I think when you look at history, it's all it's always shown through imagery and you know film and and kind of you know we used we used to the narrative of history being being shown to us visually so I, I think I think visual shorthand you know it kind of sums up lots of ideas you know like in in a single artwork you can you can kind of define a, a period in time and I think that's how I think that's how I can respond to 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 the way the world is at the moment I think you know we're all responding in our own ways but I think I think kind of visual responses to to the current situation is uh you know is, is a way of com- communicating kind of you know common ideas and positivity you yep. know it's what's yeah. needed at the moment yeah, so a lot yeah. of artists are really putting positivity out there and yeah. I think it definitely helps yeah yeah and I, I think just that you know kind of thoughtful and you know kind of kind of serious approach but uh, a kind of you know trying to trying to connect with other people you know that's that's the basic thing Thanks so much for allowing us to come and speak with you and sharing your amazing stories and uh, insights into your career. Um, It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the No Ideas podcast. Today's episode was sponsored by Bison Beer. See what they're up to at bisonbeer.co.uk. Original music was by Tomino. Check out his music at tomino.co.uk. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with more ideas.